Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. I'm your co-host, Aaron Cameron. With me, as always, Adam Pawatic. Our guest today is Brendan Sullivan from CBRE. Brendan, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, guys. So today, today is about office leasing and uh, predominantly in the Toronto market. So we apologize for those outside of the Toronto market, but you're going to learn a lot today about uh, the intricacies of office leasing in the Toronto core. Brendan, you know, why don't you start just, just with how you ended up in office leasing and at CBRE? Sure. I, um, I got into the business with a company named JJ Barnicky, and I feel very lucky to, uh, to have started my career there. JJ Barnicky was a national bo- boutique brokerage and was started by the namesake JJ Barnicky. And he was one of the uh, real pioneers of real estate brokerage. There I got to work with some really incredible real estate people Tom McCarthy, Chris Reidebach, Tom Burns, who's now a senior executive allied, Peter Sweeney, who's a senior executive at SmartReit, and really was mentored by the old school office leasing brokerage type type folks. And uh, from there, JJ ended up selling his brokerage to a company called DTZ. And it was at that point that I was able to look at other opportunities within the brokerage industry and ultimately uh, joined CBRE in 2006. So at, uh, at JJ Barnicky, were you doing office leasing from the get-go? I was. I was uh, in a unique scenario whereby I graduated university and um, and went right onto the floor in actually trading and office leasing. Typically, you would spend uh, a year or two years in research, um, and I was uh, very lucky to have bypassed that particular element and uh, got right onto the floor and really started selling. No, no offense to anybody currently working in that role, of course. It's, uh, oh, absolutely. <laughs> a great place to start. Keep it's it up. It's a great place to start. But even that uh, even that career path, you know, you, when you talk to somebody like my dad who started in brokerage 40 plus years ago, then brokerage was somewhere where you went when you were 45 years old and you'd finished your 20-year stint as a cop or whatever it was. And it was only kind of in the last maybe 30 years where people went straight from university into, into brokerage. It's, uh, it's become what I would say a very high demand industry and, uh, you know, profession for those young people. And we see in our company, some incredibly talented young folks coming out of university and identifying real estate and ultimately CBRE as, uh, as their top choice. What, what time frame are we talking? Like, when did you graduate? Uh, I graduated university from uh, Kansas state in 2005. And then immediately uh, got into uh, JJ Barnicky. They were um, doing some business with a couple of companies that I had relation to, and I uh, I was able to get introduced and uh, hit the floor. And I was there for about two years, and uh, then made the move to CB. And how did you identify office leasing? I mean, you didn't graduate you know, university thinking this is what I want to do, or did you always kind of know in the back of your mind this is where you wanted to end up? You know what? I had no idea what I wanted to do. I like went, everybody else. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I uh, for most of my young life, I, I envisioned uh, you know baseball career and millions of dollars, <laughs> um, and it became very apparent as I got a little bit older that that was not going to happen. So just connect the dots. Hence Kansas State. Yeah. Okay. Um, Either on a scholarship or I was, yeah, oh, very nice. Yeah, I was lucky enough growing up. I played with a lot of guys who uh, who made a career of baseball, and and I had hoped to do the same. 
things as they are. You know, I, uh, I got to live my dream as a real estate professional. But um, coming out of university, I had no idea. My dad was with a company, basically a retail, uh, retail goods company. He wouldn't hire me. He wanted me to get out there and to find my own path. And I ended up taking a few meetings with associates of his, uh, one of which was a gentleman by the name of John Clare. And John is a seasoned, longtime real estate professional. And uh, we hit it off. And uh, within, you know, the next year, I was uh, partnered with John and, uh, and on the floor at J.J. Barnicky. Interesting. So, so, okay, so fast forward, you start, you leave, J.J. Barnicky gets sold, you move over to CBRE. And what did you start doing when you got here? My eyes were really opened up uh, when I joined CB to the real global scope of what office leasing is. And uh, anytime that you join a company like CBRE, I think it's a little bit overwhelming. Uh, We are the largest at what we do in the world. And the different resources that became available to me were really incredible and eye-opening. Uh, so when I joined, it was a real hard look at how I was operating my business and what I wanted to do. And I feel very lucky to have joined CBRE because it allowed me the opportunity to, I think, delve a little bit deeper into what office leasing really is and ultimately find my passion in it, which is um, how people really operate uh, within their office space and um, how companies can provide environments for their employees that create, you know, a real, a real good environment to do work. I think at this point probably bears mentioning that for the first time ever, we're not recording in the first national office. We're actually sitting right now in the CBRE office. And part of the reason we came over is because it's a great example of what very modern office spaces are all about. We're sitting in a, in a, in a private room right now recording, but uh, it's I made the comment to Adam, I feel like I'm inside an iPhone. <laughs> it's got this sort of sleek, you know, sterile, but beautiful design to it. Yeah. Well, what we do uh, in part at CBRE is we develop workplace strategies for our clients and ultimately work with to execute those workplace strategies. Our president and CEO, Mark Renzoni, took that vision and ultimately developed our own workplace strategy using the same principles that we use with our clients and we executed it right across the country. And I am lucky enough to be working in our Canadian headquarters here in Toronto, where we have just over 25,000 square feet. And this is uh, really the office of the future. And it really encompasses a lot of the different trends that we're seeing in the market now and delivers you know, an incredibly unique work experience for uh, not only our brokers, but the employees across the country. Do you want to, I, I, let's go down that trail a little bit. Do you want to talk about kind of the history of office space and kind of, you know, you had mentioned that you, you kind of you know, mentored under the old school and, you know, presumably now there's, you're the new school and maybe what the differences are and, and then also how that parlays into the type of office space that's being designed, the type of office demand that, that tenants now have versus what they had 20, 30, 50 80 years ago. Is smoking rooms and things like that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) There are no smoking rooms, gentlemen. (laughs) Absolutely. So when I got into the market, excuse me, into the business, it was the mid-2000s. Toronto uh, certainly was considered a major North American city, but I don't think anyone would argue that it was a global city at that point, Uh, certainly not from an office perspective. I got into the business within the first six months, Bay Adelaide Centre, 
was announced. And that was really the first major development that our city had seen since that development was capped probably 15 years earlier. So that was, that's for those, you know, so it's the city. Bay Adelaide is effectively at the top of the financial district. That's you know, right. On Bay, Adelaide kind of runs, you know, five, three or four blocks north of King Street, which would be sort of the King and Bay would be the sort of the epicenter. How many square feet? You, you know, that uh, that development was uh, just under a million square feet okay. and uh, was kicked off by KPMG and was a real signal to our market that the office demand was high. And I think to the developers of the city in the country uh, that Toronto was a city in growth mode. From that, we've seen a number of different developments not only uh, attract lead tenant come out of the ground, but really leads to today as Toronto being one of the fastest growing global cities Mm -hmm. and um, really one of the pioneering cities as it relates to uh, current office development. The, um, that design, that, that, that development, the Adelaide Bay Center, Mm -hmm. you know, is it dated now already? I mean, I, 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 I find myself, you know, when, 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 you know, first national and financing office space that especially on the office development side, it seems to be, there's a new trend every couple of months. So can you maybe talk to what the trends have been in the past and, you know, maybe lead that into what you, why CBR designed this office space we're sitting in today the way that they did? Sure. So I think Bay Adelaide was really at the forefront of the financial cores boom. And really what came from that was the financial growth in our city, the different financial institutions, KPMG, uh, all of the banks really uh, took us through the first development phase that our our city has seen. We what, what year are you talking about specifically here? These are uh, developments from let's call it 2006 okay. through to about 2012 2013. You know, our strong financial sector really drove our market's growth through that period. Uh, we started to see a shift then in 2013 2014 to today, which has been really the uh, tech boom that's been driving the growth in our city. We're, in not to start spitting out stats, but we're our demand is about 20% technology in the city today. For office space. For office space. Wow. You know, maybe for, just for context, uh, when you started, what was the downtown uh, vacancy rate? I've seen vacancy rates in the 12 to 13 percent. Yeah. And, um, and today they are? We are sub 4% for Lo- the first lowest time. Lowest in North America, I believe. Uh, lowest in North there. America. We, this quarter, have now hit 3.8% vacancy for the first time on record. Do you find that a vacancy rate that low takes function or takes functionality out of the market? Is it harder to transact, harder to move? Does it inhibit... Uh, growth for companies when they can't find space? Well, at 3.8%, I don't think that anyone would disagree. It's a landlord's market. So the impact certainly is felt on on net and gross rates, certainly upward pressure as a result of simply a lack of supply. It does also create challenges for tenants in the market simply because there is a lack of, of inventory. So it certainly leads to creative thinking from brokers such as myself and my colleagues to try and find solutions for growth and retraction requirements. When I first started getting into the business, 
you know, you may have 25 or 30 opportunities at any particular submarket for a requirement that you'd be working on. It's not uncommon now to have, you know, three, four, maybe five if you're, uh, if you're lucky. So if, you, if you've got a, a space that's available and you've got a tenant that would be a good fit for it, are you in a rush to get them in there? Like how aggressive do you have to be in order to get deals done? Or are they just lining up? I mean, we've seen multiple scenarios where it is a bidding war. For the first time in my career, we're seeing it almost on a, on a common basis. So when tenants do see space that fits their needs and requirements, uh, absolutely, it's, um, it's, an immediate, it's an immediate type process where you have to get engaged with the landlord. You have to get uh, paper moving back and forth. And um, if not, you know, there is someone typically behind you that that's ready to step up and to move very quickly to get it done. Similar to the vacancy rates, you know, they're directly connected to the, to the, to the net rents or gross rents, whatever. Where, are, where have rents gone in your career? Where were they when you started versus where they are today? And where are they going, I guess, maybe is a more interesting question. Well, it, it's, uh, it's a very interesting question. And I think that I could go through the entire city and give you, uh, you know, our next 40 minutes on this. Some interesting, I guess, examples that I'll give. When I got into the business, one of my first deals was done in Liberty Village. And Liberty Village was certainly not the Liberty Village that it is today. Liberty Village, for those who aren't in our city, is really on the westerly side. It's predominantly brick and beam type mm-hmm. buildings. Back um, then, it probably would have been a methadone clinic. You, yeah, the tenants, you'll never uh, see a guy in a suit and everyone's wearing jeans and sneakers over there. Yeah, Absolutely. You know, it was not uncommon for us to achieve 30, 35, $38 gross rents in that market. Today, that is very different. It is the most sought after destination in our city, certainly for tech, media, uh, and creative tenants. And uh, today, you, it, you're not surprised to see numbers close or surpassing $50 gross. I actually, wow. in, I guess it was 2000, I worked for an internet marketing company based out of the Toronto Carpet Factory, which is one of the kind of flagship offices down there for tech. But back then it was virtually the only office catering to tech or anything in the area. So luckily, internet marketing, you're not wearing a suit. That's definitely a jeans and t-shirt kind of business. But the difference in that neighborhood from back then, when I go to work, you know, 2000, it was relatively scary neighborhood and now it's just uh, every corner is well, fully developed i can speak from a financing perspective i know we had a, we, we'd seen a number of conversions right guys were buying sort of the older older stock i mean they weren't really brick and brick and beam they were just you know old old hundred year old buildings but massive buildings like i and i can't remember the exact one it was on dufferin which is a, a, in the same liberty village that we're talking about it was three or four hundred thousand square feet and these guys were going to buy it and convert it to office space and and at the time this was know, four or five years ago it, it wasn't understood how this this guy with this this landlord was going to find four hundred thousand square feet worth of tenants in that kind of space because it just wasn't an established office market now to your point it you can't find space right no and you look at different developers you know hallmark allied you know adgar uh, in their transformation of the canada bread building this is a growth market for our city and one that the development community has identified and is working very hard at creating new opportunities and new spaces for tenants because it's in such high demand. To answer or to follow along your question, Liberty Village has been a huge growth market. We've also seen that same growth moving closer to the core in the financial market. 
we certainly have seen buildings raise ten, fifteen dollars in their net rents. Just on rollover. Just on rollover and pure demand and growth. We've seen a transformation of the core with potential developments um, and um, and the demand for those developments. Our city today, we were looking at this with our research group over the last couple of weeks. We have a total of almost 20 million square feet proposed developments um, within the city. Given the demand and the growth that our city has seen, there's no... Um, there's no surprise that we have this opportunity not only to grow the city, but to do it organically. We've had this conversation before on the podcast, but I think it, it bears mentioning that, um, you know, the, the macroeconomic forces in this city and, and in other cities across the country where there's there's a ton of condo development. So you're getting a ton of, of individuals moving downtown, talented individuals uh, who want to reside and live and work and play downtown. So the employers are sort of following that trend. If I want to have the highest and best talent, then I need to have office space in that core that's close to where they're living. Uh, and then, of course, that's just driving the demand all over the city. And we're seeing it. I mean, you know, in the 90s, it, it was the reverse. Get out of the city. People want to live in the suburbs. They don't want to drive downtown. So let's open up huge office spaces in the suburbs. And now, you know, you've, they're, you're, they're, it's the opposite. Everyone's moving downtown. Everybody wants more space, larger space to attract that talent so that people can walk to work, right? And it's, I mean, maybe you can speak to it. It, it, it. Where does it go from here? Does it continue to go up? I mean, $60 net rents, sorry, $60 gross rents in Liberty Village, where are they? I, I suppose they're higher in the downtown core. So I'll give you a couple of interesting points. I was part of a an event where David Jarofsky was speaking. And David? David Jarofsky is yeah. the uh, CEO of First Golf. Okay. CEO and COO of First Golf and Great Golf, which is a commercial and residential developer. He actually is heading uh, one of the largest developments in our city with East Harbor, the Unilever site, uh, just on the east side of our city, proposed for 12 million square feet of commercial space. And really making the market there because there's nothing there now that uh, would be like it. It, the, it is coming. It is coming. And David, I'm quoting him by saying, the growth of Toronto is expected to reach uh, 10 million residents by 2041, which is absolutely incredible when you think of, of that growth uh, in such a short amount of time. Uh, that growth is really, I think, driving not only uh, our residential market, but our commercial market. And something that we talk about and we focus on uh, on behalf of our clients is the war for talent that's out there. It's really from an office leasing perspective, an office space perspective, it's about creating an opportunity for a company to attract and retain the best and the brightest employee. And at the center of many workplace strategies is that principle. We've now seen uh, with the millennial generation a real desire to be in an urban center. It's really uh, the millennials are looking for a live work play. It's really experiential type of demand from that age group. And so when you have that demand, companies are now being sucked into these urban centers. And simply because they need to service that millennial generation that they're really um, uh, trying to attract and, and retain. So we've seen different developments take account for that principle and try and create competitive advantage for those, for those companies. 
And it goes, you know, across the board with developments like 100 Adelaide, uh, which is a financial core development that Oxford has now come out of the ground with a very forward thinking financial services type tower. You contrast that to a 134 Peter Street, which is in our downtown West Market, a development that was brought to the market by Allied, servicing a creative and media tenants. I was actually just in a space just recently, and uh, it's, it's striking. It's a, the lobby space is unbelievable, but definitely not your typical corporate environment. It's For those in Toronto, you'd know that space. That's the one where they've got this massive lobby with this huge sort of triangle stand. You know, how would you explain that thing? It looks like a one of those those dwindles you'd play when you were a little kid with, or, or is that what is that the right? They called dwindles. What was those things? Called? I don't those know. Things if it's called, called a dwindle. <laughs> we'll go with dwindle. It, it, it's an art piece, and it's a really interesting. It's a really interesting project. Dreidel, dreidel. That's what is it. Dreidel. Okay, yeah. maybe, maybe. There you go. Anyway, leave it that. <laughs> it's really interesting when you look at that particular project because it, they plan the building with simply, to the best of my knowledge just a very large cavernous lobby. When the building opened, they then started to create the lobby as a meeting space. Um, It started with an open-air cafe. It then evolved with a restaurant that had patio seating on the inside of the cavernous lobby. Which for a Canadian environment makes sense given our short season here. It then, Allied started getting calls from different organizations that wanted to have corporate events. It now has evolved into an event space that is highly sought after by individuals and corporations uh, really throughout the city. And it is what I like to call really Lobby 1.0, where developers are now starting to look at the different uses for that type of space. And I'm involved with a project with Mancus Developments, uh, which is Canada's first purpose-built innovation center. And uh, spanning two buildings and 400,000 square feet, we have developed an area of 12,000 square feet, which traditionally you would call a lobby. We affectionately call it Lobby 2.0. And this is going to be an area where we create collaboration and collisions, not only for the occupants of the building, but for the community at large. And I think that this is a great example of how our city and the buildings within our city have evolved to account for not just a space that you call a lobby, but a space that becomes functional and creates opportunity for tenants and for the community. So, so that, that, that's a good segue, Brendan. Let's talk about you know, more specifically your role and, and who, you, who you represent and, and what, your, what your objectives are when you do are working with clients. So in this case, you said you're working with Mancus, who is clearly the, the developer and the landlord of this space. So let's start there. When you're working with those types of, those types of, of, of organizations, you're offering guidance, just one on, on the, the scope and what, what, what type of what type of development they should be doing in that in that space if they identify it's going to be office. Now, what, what kind of guidance are you offering them? I mean, clearly you're thinking about the type of tenants that they need and how do you maximize maximize the space in order to, to generate the most amount of revenue. But at the same time, you wanted to have that attractiveness. You're talking about this, you know, 12,000 square foot lobby. That That's not necessarily this quote unquote wasted space, but um, still 3% of the square feet of the building though. Right. So, so, yeah, so, so how do you, what, what, maybe just walk us through what, what kind of, what your process is when you're, when you're working with these clients. 
Sure. So in the case of the Waterfront Innovation Center, uh, it was brought as an opportunity to CBRE with really the envelope already in place. It was identified as an innovation center. It is part of the Waterfront Toronto East Bayfront redevelopment, which is one of the largest community redevelopments in the world. And it was brought to us as the keystone to that uh, future development. So it will be an innovation center. And our job is to help to define and refine what exactly an innovation center is and connect that theory to the workplace strategies of the technology, media, creative companies uh, really throughout the country and around North America um, and try and create an identifiable home uh, for these type of uh, tenants. So so let's say a financial institution uh, approaches you, uh, maybe an insurance company, let's say, uh, and they just want to, they want the space for their back office servicing group, and they're willing to offer the maximum amount of rent that, that you could possibly imagine. Would you just say, no, sorry, your, your, your type of, of employment doesn't fit with what we want in this particular space? Absolutely not. I don't think that we're in a position to say no to anyone. What we're doing is we're creating a community. We're creating an ecosystem. Right. Regardless of what the type of, of operation or, or, or jobs or work that's occurring right. within that space. Yeah. Right. We're, we're creating an ecosystem. And for an innovation center to be truly innovative, they have to provide tenants with a number of different experiences. And there are a number of different industries that are critical to innovation that wouldn't necessarily be categorized as innovation. Mm. So uh, it's important for us to understand that ecosystem and how to build it. So um, anyone who's out there listening that might not think they're innovative but want to be in the Innovation Center, we would encourage those calls. It's something interesting too about that particular development is you're not just creating an ecosystem within that building. That whole area is rapidly changing. Absolutely. It's it's a very obvious example of I guess, poor city design in that 20 years ago, it's all waterfront parking lots because everybody knows that their unattended car needs to stare at a lake view all day long while you're in your, your office tower. And somebody finally realized, no, this is valuable real estate. And it's been really been changing in the last, uh, you'll call it five years. I believe one of the, um, the colleges, universities has set up a, a big center down there, created an event space in the beach down there. It's, it's really changed. It's unbelievable. Absolutely. That, that whole area is being redeveloped and managed by Waterfront Toronto, which is an organization, to my understanding, that was formed out of really a failed Olympic bid. And what Waterfront Toronto has done is uh, consolidated the three different levels of government being federal, provincial, and municipal to create one vision and one story for the east uh, side of our waterfront in Toronto. And ultimately, there is a direction that Waterfront Toronto is taking this particular community development. And it simply isn't just a commercial vision. It simply isn't just a retail vision, but it's a vision for all of the different real estate sectors and the individuals that will ultimately occupy the space, be it residential, commercial in that area. We're looking at, you know, over 5 million square feet of office space. We're looking at over 30,000 new residents in the city. We're looking at over a million square feet of retail. And that's just really in the first phase of this development. And parked right in the middle, there's an interesting side note on 
I mean, we've talked about NIMBYism before on this podcast. Uh, Red Path Sugar is planted right in the middle of it, right in the waterfront for shipping access for their sugar. And it's a loud business and you can smell it. And there's going to be a lot of people around there in the coming future. It's uh, There'll be an interesting clash of wills, but I'm sure that the the change... You know, I can't change see it land. being there for much longer, but I, I don't know, you know, who owns the land? Do you know? Do you have any sense of, if is that owned by Red Pass? Do they kind of control their own destiny? If I were a betting man, I would bet that Red Path will be there for many more years to come. Interesting. Okay. They, I think they just invested in their in their facility, I believe, a, a, a $10, 20000000 million in their facility, it sounds wow. like. It is, um, it is one of Toronto's, I think, identifiable marks, and I think really a, uh, a keystone for the future of that East Bay front. Really, I think where this all started was during the Industrial Revolution, and I talk about this with uh, my colleagues and a number of different developers, but during the Industrial Revolution, there was a real focus on city planning around the vehicle, in vehicular traffic. And really, it started to evolve in North America. While at the same time, there was an architect by the name of Yong Gall. And uh, anyone who's interested in this kind of stuff, I would encourage to check out a documentary called The Human Scale. And when I watched The Human Scale, that's what really grew my interest in technology and, and how cities work and how uh, buildings work. Because Yong Gall created a theory around city planning and people and how people should operate. Fast forward to today, I think what we're seeing in our city planning, as well as the office buildings, the residential buildings that we're developing, started with that theory around city planning and people. Take that to the buildings that are being proposed by First Golf at 25 Ontario in Liberty Village on the west side of our city with a number of different developers and with our site for the Innovation Center in Mencas, there is a change happening in our market in the way buildings are being delivered for its tenants. And I think it is really a focus on the people and the people's experience um, in the building. I, f- I find that really interesting. So let's, let's keep talking about that. You know, in, the, in other assets of, of, of um, real estate, you know, apartments or condos is the easiest one. There's all sorts of different amenities that you can add to a building that will change the flavor and the and the, the experience of the tenants. And you know, you go through the list from when it's simple: the pools to rooftop patios to dog washing stations to you know cafe cafes to meeting rooms. I mean, there's all sorts of different things you can do to attract different types of people, different tenants. In office space, I think, and this is where, what you're talking about, is it, it historically has been build the tower, put an elevator bay, make sure there's enough parking spots for everybody that's driving there, and you know, they're going to jump in their car. They're going to drive in their car, jump in the elevator, go up, sit there for eight hours, get in the elevator, go back downstairs, get in their car and leave. And so what do you need more than just as much desk space as possible? So you've already mentioned this 12,000 square foot you know, lobby, your lobby 2.0 in, in the in the Mancus development. What other things are are the developers doing to these office buildings to be more attractive, different amenities they're adding that, that make it a more experiential you know, experience for the tenant? Well, I think first and foremost, any developer will tell you that access is absolutely critical. And I don't think that that's singular to the times that we're living in today. Uh, Access has always been a critical issue. And if you look at historical developments, uh, you know, Canary Wharf being uh, one that comes to mind, 
Uh, I believe it was in the early 90s, Canary Wharf uh, opened up uh, without any public uh, access. Essentially, it was simply vehicular access. Where is that? In London. Okay. And it wasn't really until they were able to provide access to the public through the Jubilee line that Canary Wharf actually became one of the you know great developments of the world. So first and foremost, I think that it is public infrastructure and public transportation that is necessary for any development to be successful. Uh, once we get to that point and we can get people in and out, it then has to be truly a live work play uh, opportunity. You will have those who come from uh, you know a great distance to really any office building. But generally today, we're finding the migration to the urban center for those individuals to be close to work. The days of, you know, the hour and a half uh, commute from Burlington to downtown Toronto seem to be over, or at least they were over for me when I turned 23 and decided I'm not doing this anymore. Um, So uh, I think really being able to provide amenities Uh, So places to not only go out for lunch during the day, but to go out after work, to go out on the weekends, health and fitness is absolutely critical. More gym facilities. Gym facilities, outdoor activity areas, trails. Is there more using the rooftop more? I mean, typically office buildings have big cell towers on the top, but, you know, condos always try to benefit from that space because it is really a, a, a nice place to be. Are you seeing more of that? Right now in our market, I have seen more proposed developments with patio space mm-hmm. in various patio spaces. Not just rooftop, you mean? Yeah. yeah. Then I have seen in our market that actually can provide patio space. So there are more patios proposed. Now, this is me taking a guess, but more uh, patios proposed then there are actual patios in our city. In the office space. In the office space market. Interesting. And that, I'm sure, means more bike parking space. and Absolutely critical to have bike parking, to have showers. You know, I ride my bike to work every once in a while. Me too. Um, And um, it's just absolutely a must when you're talking to financial services, insurance, you know, media, technology, right across the board. Doesn't matter what what type of business they yeah. need that, right? Yeah. Smart elevators seem to be pretty standard in all new buildings. And it's, uh, I notice it now and I've been to an office recently. It's had some elevator issues and it's really frustrating. And they go to a brand new office tower. You're never waiting. You're always up and down. It's for those that fantastic. haven't experienced. I mean, I think it's pretty prevalent now, but you know, if two years ago it was not, it was, a, it was a peculiar thing, but you literally just walk up, push a push, what floor you're going to. And then it tells you which elevator you are taking. Direct dispatch is, uh, is the name of, of the elevators that we're seeing predominantly in Toronto. And they have had great success. One York is a building that uh, recently opened that has the direct dispatch, uh, 100 Adelaide. You know, the technology uh, that is being provided in these new towers is really very incredible. Um, and one York, I think, I believe it's a 60 story plus tower. So you could an inefficient system be stuck for quite a while waiting it's absolutely uh, absolutely to go outside of the building you know you look at some of the residential developments and in, really important for them is to be close to the commercial something that i've seen a couple of times most recently is residential developments that will open that have a school a school use actually enclosed within that that Mm. condo development, a Toronto District School Board school 
being included as part of major residential Sorry, that's going on right now? Where is that? Which one is that? Um, the LCBO redevelopment down on the uh, on the waterfront. It's uh, going to have a school component to it. We'll have a school component. Would that have been city mandated, though? As I know the infrastructure demand has been pretty uh, thorny issue in Toronto. We build all these towers and you don't put much in the infrastructure. Would that have been city mandated that they wanted to see school facility in there? I specifically wasn't part of those conversations. However, the developer is Mancus. Uh, Mancus is a very forward-thinking organization. Mm-hmm. And a um, former uh, podcast guest, too. Yes, yeah. Noah Noah was on the, yeah, the podcast. Noah I can tell you that they see that element as a real opportunity for them and something that they're very proud of as it relates to that specific development. So if we're talking about um, amenities you know, for the building, uh, what about more specifically inside an office? Yep. I mean, can you kind of run through what CBRE did in this office to make you, know, you as an employee make your experience here better? Well, I think really interesting to that question is the WELL certification, which is a new certification within the office leasing world, which essentially focuses on the human experience uh, within an office space. We at CBRE were lucky enough to be the first well-certified office space in the world with our uh, headquarters in Los Angeles. The well-certification has now grown prevalently, prevalently through North America to the extent that it is a strong consideration for any building that's being developed and how they deliver the shell to their potential tenants, keeping in mind that there may be uh, a high demand for this well certification. So well certification uh, covers uh, a number of different elements, fresh air. uh, So in our office here, the air quality is amongst the the top 1% in the world. We are all located within 20 feet of natural light. Uh, All of our desks are sit-stand. Uh, I'm not sure if you fellas have heard, but uh, sitting is the new smoking. Um, so uh, our desks are sit As we're all sitting here crunched over, <laughs> trying to talk into the mics, yeah. Um, it is antibacterial surfaces uh, on our desk. These are all elements that are critical to the well certification, uh, but also seen as critical to the human experience. Uh, within the office space. So is the idea that the antibacterial service would diminish the office cold that plagues everybody from November to to March? Is that the idea? Well, I caught mine in uh, at the beginning of September. So and you still hear it a little bit. Yeah, but yes, uh, I think in part its task is to try and eliminate that nasty cold. So that certification, that's for the tenant space. That's not for the building at large. The building can provide, needs to provide specific infrastructure within the building envelope. Quality of HVAC, that kind of thing. Exactly. In order for the tenant to ultimately deliver a space that is well certified. Now, what does the tenant get with that certification? What does it come with other than just you can can put it on your your wall or post it or advertise it on your website, that kind of thing? I think it comes with a competitive advantage in the offering to that company's employees. Uh, I can tell you that uh, we are a well-certified office here. And... Ultimately, what uh, we're able to provide is amongst the top work experiences throughout the world, not just in Canada. And that's because of these elements that are embedded in our workplace strategy and executed in our space. So do you want to talk about other work environments 
other workplace and in, in workplace environments that you're that you're working on with your with some of your tenant clients and what they're doing and the different trends that have occurred in the office space over the last couple of years? Yeah, absolutely. I think really what we're seeing now is a drive to experience. And it goes back to that millennial conversation. When you look at millennials, really what drives them is the experience of life. It's not necessarily collecting and buying as it were with with our parents. And so when we're building workplace strategies and executing on leases and leasing opportunities for our clients, it really has to be more than just the numbers. Uh, When I got into the business, I regularly dealt with CFOs or VPs of finance. Not to say that they're not involved in the conversations. They certainly are today, but we're starting to see more of HR input into real estate decisions and how ultimately that the office space provides for their employees. So patios, outdoor space, activities, what type of amenities are available in the building, gyms, bike storage. You know, there are base building elements that have become more prevalent, uh, such as pressurized raised floor systems. Uh, These raised floor systems, first of all, will transfer fresh air from the ground as opposed to the ceiling, creating a more efficient HVAC system, uh, pumping more fresh air available to the employee or the, uh, the individual than if pushed down from the ceiling. Also, at the same time, being able to run your IT and cabling from the floor as opposed to above a T-bar, you're able to, using this system, almost immediately manipulate the layout of the floor by simply pulling a tile and replacing it with an HVAC duct or uh, an IT uh, outlet. It really has created a maneuverable and efficient workspace layout for those individuals. So some of the older buildings in Toronto, I mean, across the world, I'm sure, had this this style of um, big offices around the outside, cubicles on the inside, right? So all the executives sit in their big offices with the window view, corner offices, obviously, the, the higher up you are in the hierarchy. And then there was this trend towards, okay, let's get rid of all the offices and everybody's going to sit in the exact same cubicle and we'll put the we'll put the executives in the middle and sort of as, you know, in the, the, the brain center and, and grow out from there. What's the what's the next trend? I mean, I I, I feel like they're they're it's constantly evolving. I mean, at one point, you know, there was this concept of well, everyone's just going to have a box, and then you show up in the morning, and you kind of grab your box and wheel it over to whatever desk space is available, and that's where you're going to work for the day, and you're always going to be moving around, and it would cause innovation, and you know, you'd be sitting beside someone different all the time, and you know, sort of foster more of a a cohesive environment for that particular business. Where are we going now? What what are you seeing the designs for certain businesses or or in general? I think that it's really industry specific at this point. And I think what we're starting to see is industries understand that they operate different than others. A technology company simply is operating differently than a financial services firm, as is operating differently than a legal uh, firm. So I see there being very specific delineations and definitions as to uh, workplace strategy for specific industries. Um, I think technology will drastically change the way that we work within our office buildings over the next 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, And that will be 
now the next change where over the last 10 years, it's been about open spaces and collaborations. I think the technology will be the next driver of change within workplace strategy. I don't see us going back to the traditional perimeter office, interior workstations uh, of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, CBRE in the 90s was one of the first organizations, at least the story that we tell, is we were one of the first organizations to adopt the fully open concept. That is still absolutely prevalent right across the board and I think uh, achieves the objective of creating collaboration and collisions. Also, there needs to be a focus on being able to create that singular space for you to do your work and to focus when that needs to happen. So what we're seeing in our workplace strategies is not necessarily a dedicated offices, but areas within the office space that can be utilized for any individual that needs to create a quiet space, to create a focus area, to get their work done. And if you look at you know, some of the technology that's out there, melding that principle with the technology really creates an efficient and seamless delivery to an employee when executed by a company in their workplace strategy. You know, one of the, one of the trends that I've heard of is you know, these millennials wanting more flexibility, want to be able to work from home or work from wherever they are, which means they're not coming to their office, you know, eight, 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 eight to five, nine to five every day sitting in that one same cubicle, right? They want more flexibility. Now that drives, you know, I'm sure you, maybe you can, you can tell us what the numbers are, but there probably used to be sort of, you know, pretty strict number of number of square feet per employee you just need and that, that number is probably going down right you can fill more you take less space with the same number of employees because there's just more flexibility people working from home only be in the office once a week how does that what's what's going on in that trend uh that's a great question when i got into the business we used to generally use one employee per about 200 215 square feet mm-hmm. today we're looking at workplace strategies and space plans that deliver one employee to 150, 140 square feet. So that's down 40%, give or take. In some cases, in some cases, we're looking at ratios of one employee per 100 square feet. Buildings are now being developed for the capacity to deliver one per 100. You mentioned uh, law offices. Are they still sticking to the large offices for lawyers in the 52nd story of an office tower decked out to the nines? Not necessarily. Um, they Law firms generally have a requirement for, for office, individual offices, and that's just by the nature of their business. But we have definitely seen the law sector, the legal sector, adjust their general workplace strategies and how they're delivering uh, space. Ultimately, what this all comes down to is you're trying to create a unique environment for your employee, uh, but also you're trying to deliver an efficient plan and execution for your space. So we've seen the ratio of space per employee shrink. We've also generally seen the necessary square footage shrink. And you mentioned earlier, Aaron, the uh, hoteling type situation. Uh, I won't mention the uh, specific tenant, but there was a tenant in the downtown financial core who did a major deal 
and executed a workplace strategy within their space to accommodate for their employees on a work from home type scenario. What they found is that they were so efficient with their workplace strategy that they actually leased too much space and Mm -hmm. brought Mm -hmm. almost 25% of their lease space to the market as a sublease because of the efficiency of their workplace strategy. What about meeting rooms? Meeting rooms and cafeteria space, you know, those types of those types of amenities that are, are necessary for some businesses, maybe not for others. Is there a particular trend or strategy that you're that you're you're employing or your tenants are employing? I think a great example of lunchroom space is our CBRE office and what we've been able to deliver. We have a cafe of approximately two thousand square feet that ultimately becomes the heart of our office. At CBRE, we're not allowed to eat at our desks. Uh, We have to eat our lunch, our breakfast, our dinner, if we're in the office, uh, in the cafe. And what that does is it brings everyone together and it creates a singular point for our organization to come together. And from this sort of singular space, we're able to collaborate, we're able to share information and ultimately become a closer organization uh, because of the planning of our office and how, you know, we eat and spend our time. It creates more of a sense of community, I'm sure. You Absolutely. see people more often than if you don't. Absolutely. I, think, I think you even mentioned, too, that you hosted an event for the Floyd Mayweather-Connor McGregor fight uh, just uh, earlier this summer, right? Yeah, it it, it becomes a multi-use uh, place for, you know, our our organization. You know, for things like uh, the Floyd McGregor fight, you know, sometimes uh, we have a group who's in here fairly early in the morning and we'll have a breakfast club. We have, you know, some individuals that work pretty late and we'll have, you know, a dinner club. It's a place where we're able to host uh, different series. We have a CEO series uh, where different executives within the real estate industry come in and speak to us about, you know, different projects and what they're working on. And we have professionals from across the GTA at CBRE coming in and coming into this, you know, beautiful area for these type of events. It really has become, you know, the heart of our organization. In terms of meeting spaces, it's absolutely critical when you do have an open office concept that you have spaces for people to meet and to collaborate So it's not just, you know, having a boardroom or having a small, you know, cold call room. It's about having a number of different options at a number of different sizes. And they don't all necessarily need to be enclosed spaces. So we've got a variety of different seating areas where two people, four people, 10 people can come together in a less formal environment than a traditional boardroom and collaborate and meet and get whatever work they need to get done. Okay. So we've, we've been focused more on, you know, the value you bring to, you know, the landlords and, and on that side of things. But what, what about um, your tenant clients and, and the different, different value adds or, or advantages that you can bring to them? Well, I think uh, anytime that you have the opportunity to represent a company, it's critical to understand that company and what drives them. No deal is the same. And that comes from, you know, my career experience and the experience of those who I've learned from. So uh, it starts 
first and foremost by understanding what drives the organization. It must and, be really interesting, actually, because you get to you got to kind of dig deep a little bit, understand the culture of that organization, what culture they're trying to foster going forward. I mean, moving space is an opportunity to change culture. If you're in an old sort of dilapidated space, moving to a new, more retro space. And I guess it depends on if they're an insurance company, use that example again, or a IT company or a gaming company or whatever. Right? It must be kind of fascinating that you get to go and you know, do it quickly. Go and dive in, understand it, get out, right? You know, so one of the things that I truly love about my job is that I get to see so many different businesses and how they differ and how they're similar. And like I said, you know, no deal is the same and no technology company is the same as their neighbor. So um, being able to understand the business, understand what makes this particular company successful and what their objectives are, not only for their space, but for their organization is absolutely critical to building a workplace strategy. You have to think that in most cases, lease obligations extend at minimum for four or five years. And in some cases, as long as 15 or 20. So you're doing a lot of business planning at the onset of any real estate discussion and ultimately strategy. And regardless of the, the lease term, I mean, the, ultimately you're, you're, you're typically putting a bunch of money in the space, investing a ton of money in the space. So, you know, Absolutely. maybe a five-year term, but you're not going to put a couple million bucks into a space and then leave five years later, typically, right? Absolutely. So things like capital investment need to be accounted for, future planning. And in some cases, you know, if you are putting you know, a substantial capex into a space, you have to look long and hard. And it's part of the strategy of what is the term that's optimal for our organization. And then, you know, things such as flexibility within your actual uh, legal obligations, you know, sublet opportunities, termination opportunities. These are all very significant aspects of any organization's lease that need to be accounted for before you're even out there kicking tires on spaces and as part of that, that strategy. And once you then are able to build that strategy, it's taking the strategy and executing it within the market. You know, we talk about our 3.8% vacancy at the beginning of the podcast. 3.8% makes uh, creates a challenge in executing some workplace strategies. Growth growth of a company must be one of the more challenging aspects when it comes to picking space. I mean, if you are if you have a company that most companies have a mandate to grow, and right now you're sitting at 100 employees, but in five years you want to be at 300 employees, uh, you don't have to move every time you add 100 employees. So, you know, what is the strategy? Do you have to build that into your lease? Let's say, like, I'm, I'm going to take a space for 100 employees, but I want the opportunity to grow. How would you ever you know, how would a landlord ever provide that type of value? Well, or how do you go about finding that or start serving that kind of client? That's, that's a great question. And when we represent tenants, you have to think most tenants do this once every five or 10 years. We have the ability to do this on a daily basis. So it's a question that we get quite often and a strategy that we have to build for uh, on a daily basis. There are mechanisms that a landlord Uh, is able to provide and we're able to negotiate on behalf of our tenants to provide for that flexibility. Examples are rights of first refusal or rights of first offer on spaces that either adjoin or are in the building, which a particular client may be in. And those 
are just two examples of ways that we can protect our client if space uh, becomes available at the time when expansion is necessary. Especially if you're dealing with tenants. I mean, well, similar to us, uh, to Aaron and I in lending, if you're talking about end users, they only think about real estate when something's about to happen. They don't think about it day in and day out. They don't track the changes. They're not listening to this podcast <laughs> just, you know, when, when it comes up the knee comes up although they should be they should be they uh they you know they focus very intently on the real estate for three months and then those decisions affect the next 10 years of their lease but they don't uh, think about it in the interim so uh, obviously the value somebody like yourself can come from that is that you're you're breathing this day in and day out and well and it's it's also that you're you're working with your client our job doesn't start nor finish with a lease it it continues through the lease to ensure that a tenant is aware of their opportunities, their risks within the document, and ultimately matching the evolution of their business to their obligations within, you know, their lease in an office space. So it's our job, my job doesn't, uh, isn't a three-month process. Mine really is an ongoing process for our clients ensuring that we're able to develop, to execute a workplace strategy, to successfully negotiate a lease that provides for the necessary flexibility for our clients. And then that throughout that lease, that there's no business change that materially affects the business uh, that can't be accounted for in the in their document, in their lease. Where do you think we're going? We're talking about, you know, the CapEx spent on designing space and, you know, the need for growth and to accommodate, um, you know, different changes in, in, in the particular business. You know, where, where's the next trend? Where, where are we going in the next 30 years? And what should tenants or what should landlords be thinking about, you know, when they're bu- designing their buildings or designing their space for, for, for tenancy? I think that we're all extremely lucky to be living in Toronto, you know, at this point in time. I see... I think that we are witnessing the ascent of Toronto into a truly global city. And I think over the next 30 years, our growth will be unprecedented. And it's with that growth that I think comes incredible opportunity for individuals and for organizations and companies. I see Toronto becoming one of the tech hubs of the world. I see Toronto really taking a forward thinking approach to its city planning and becoming a real beacon for North American cities as they grow into major global centers. I think that our development community has taken a much different approach in understanding the impact that our buildings have on communities and individuals. And I see the communities and the opportunities that are being built, certainly within office space, as being some of the most unique and innovative in the world. Waterfront Toronto is creating a new submarket in our city that is being built specifically for, you know, the growth of our city with all of the past knowledge of you know, the hundred years of our growth. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. Actually, if you think about it, I mean, we're already are a city of six something million. And I think you, to your point, I agree with you. Like we're getting there, right? We, people are now mentioning us in the same breath as the Seoul's and the Tokyo's and the Madrid's and the London's and the Paris's, you know, it, we're not quite there in the Sydney. We're not quite there yet, but I think we're in that second tier 
joining the there. joining the top tier. But then you know, for me, it's a it's incredible that um, we have this huge, huge track of land right right adjacent to the downtown core that's just sitting there waiting to be developed on the waterfront. You know, with typically or, or almost all of his walking distance to the downtown, and it still hasn't been touched. And this is what you're talking about: this waterfront Toronto, mm-hmm. and that's the that's the the property that's that that's the real estate that's immediately adjacent to the downtown core. But you know, there's the South Donlands for those that, that don't know Toronto is just a little bit further east. Um, that that is you now I think it's environmentally contaminated, but they'll figure it out at some point. Do you have any sense of how big that space is? Like it's it's a ton of sort of unused or very poorly used industrial space, but it's got to be in the hundreds of acres of land like it's massive and it hasn't been touched yet so i just i'm i'm, I'm putting that into just to, to to support your 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 point that it's it's we've got so much room to grow still 2400 acres 2400 acres yeah yeah i was close <laughs> <laughs> it is um it is i think one of the huge beacons of our city and the opportunity that we have in the real estate community is uh, on that east uh, east side of our waterfront. But I don't think it stops there. Uh, Young and Eglinton, with, uh, with Young and Eglinton, for those who don't know the city, um, is like what we Midtown. would call. Yeah, we would yeah. call the northern side of Midtown. It is connected with our north-south um, subway line and is nearing completion of a second line, which will run east-west across. This will rejuvenate the Midtown market. Oxford Oxford Properties has acquired Canada Square, which is three buildings that sit on the southwest corner uh, of Young Street, which is um, Canada's longest street, and Eglinton. And uh, as a development site, that will be one of the largest that our city sees. Um, Oxford, any project that they take on um, is, you know, noteworthy from a national perspective, from an international perspective. And uh, we see that as being uh, a huge opportunity for growth in our city. Cadillac Fairview with their development of 16 York. On spec, which is interesting. Which is very interesting. But 800,000 square feet, if memory serves correct. That's That's right. Without a single tenant signed up when they started, my understanding. That's... Typically, we are a passive development market, and what I mean by that is that developers tend to to put a shovel in the ground with a commitment from a tenant. A Cadillac Fairview came out and, um, uncharacteristically of our city, announced that they would begin construction on 16 York, an 800,000 square foot office tower in the South Core on spec. We have seen developments like the Canada Bread Factory, Hallmark and Liberty Village, Keverick and their developments truly take advantage of the market demand in Liberty Village. We've seen a migration from our suburban markets to our downtown markets, and it's only continuing to grow. Canada is, in Toronto specifically, is a destination for uh, those individuals migrating to our country. George Brown College, uh, as well as Sheridan, have some of the best programs for information and technology, which are graduating some of the most sought-after intellectual and technological minds. Our financial sector is incredibly strong and continues to be a model for financial sectors across the world. 
really, I think that Toronto is at the precipice of something incredibly special. And we're all very lucky to be able to watch and participate in the growth of our city. I agree. That's great. If you were to travel back in time to the first day of your career, what would you say other than don't worry, there's life after baseball? (laughs) I think if I could go back and talk to 22 or 23-year-old Brendan, I would encourage him to find and to follow my passion. I think that I didn't allow myself the opportunity to connect different dots. I was very singular minded when I started my career that I needed to cold call all day, every day. Not to say that you in brokerage shouldn't be cold calling. You should, uh, but you should be cold calling with a purpose. And I think you know, when I started to love what I did, it was because I was able to connect it with how people operate within their office space. And ultimately, it's evolved into this passion for city planning, for development, for, you know, how people work. And it's because of that passion that I can translate it into opportunities for my clients So the first thing that I would uh, advise myself to do is to read, read a lot, and to look at the different elements of real estate and figure out what I, what I really liked about it. And then to, to study it and to let it become part of uh, my business. Uh, The other advice that I would give myself is to meet as many people as possible. Uh, We are a very small industry, but we're a very large industry at the same time. And it's in meeting people outside of brokerage, you know, guys such as yourself, that I really get to learn and understand real estate from the different levels that ultimately go into um, a project and into a market. So look outside of brokerage to the different experts um, in the various different uh, elements of real estate to truly try and understand what real estate is and what makes it successful. Perfect. Up next, we've got a news article from the the Real Estate News Exchange, and it kind of fits with some of the theme that we've been talking about today. It's from one of the recent conferences, anyway. It was an expert panel envisions future of parking. And it kind of goes into what we're talking about, the evolving way that people live and use their cities. There's a couple of key quotes I wanted to bring out. The first one's from Natalie Vukovic, a partner at Doust Vukovic. His tenants are still asking for the things they've always asked for. They insist they have a ridiculous amount of parking and they can't grasp the possibility that their customers may not need to park. And another one is that uh, a study cited showed that 70 so the, uh, the average vehicle is parked 97% of the time. I guess what we're talking about today is groups that are embracing the change. This would be groups that are not embracing the change. That, that specifically. Is that's an interesting question as it relates to the office space. Because I know, you know on the condo, apartment, res- multifamily side, 
Uh, certainly, there's there's a, a desire by the developers to have less parking. Uh, you know, the, you see the numbers. It used to be sort of like a one and a half parking places per unit. Now they're down to the, you know 0. 0.75, 0. 0.5. I've seen some developments where they're doing zero parking, and they're just making this case that no, no, no one's going to need to park in our building. They're all going to be walking to work because their office space is right next door. And of course, you know, when you're doing development, digging down is eighty percent of the risk and half the cost, right? So in the office market, are you seeing any changes? Are they are they providing less parking now? On the argument that no, no, people are walking and riding their bikes to work? The demand for parking is less. The inventory for parking remains the same. We're not at a point yet where I believe we don't see parking as an absolute requirement. I see the generational change leading to that point. But in my negotiations on behalf of landlords and tenants, parking remains a key component for any tenant. Is there a ratio? Like, What, what is the ratio that these office developers use to say, you know, is it spaces per square foot? Or It is. And it varies market to market. But generally speaking, well, in the Toronto market, being, you know, Midtown to Liberty Village on the west side to downtown east on the east side, the south core on the south, you know, I see ratios generally from one spot per 1,500 square feet to, in some cases, one spot per 3,500 square feet. And some companies, that is a driving decision into which building they will go into. And I've been part on both sides, behalf negotiations on behalf of landlords and on behalf of tenants that have eliminated specific sites because of their inability to provide a ratio that matches their requirement. Yeah, if you need it, you're you're going to need it. There's probably no way of working around that without firing a bunch of car driving employees. Well, the other thing them. is there's there's no surface parking spots in downtown Toronto anymore. I mean, at least the, historically, you could probably say, "Wow, oh, well, there's a parking spot next door. We can always yeah. use it as overage." But you know, with our city plan and the potential for TTC infrastructure, you know. I'd love to make a date in 30 years for us to sit down and talk about where we're at uh, at that point. We'll be negotiating or discussing the need for a relief line downtown still. Yeah, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I, I think that we are at the onset of a change in vehicular demand and vehicular use. Autonomous vehicles are mm-hmm. certainly a major consideration for city planning. But at this point, Personally, I don't see the a position where a developer can put a uh, you know a, a building in the ground and not be able to uh, address parking for its future tenants. On that theme, is actually an interesting concept that they put into the article. This was John Williams, a senior partner with the J.C. Williams Group. In terms of development, he said he'd focus on parking decks that could be torn down when they're no longer needed and replaced with more profitable structures. So you're building now, put it in place, but recognize the fact that 15 years from now, you may not need it and plan to turn it into something that makes sense. I thought that was a kind of clever way of building to satisfy today's demand as well as tomorrow's. It sounds like John is reading the same books I am. <laughs> I'll have to ask him about that. I got nothing else. I guess we want to thank our thank our guest. Yeah, that only, was a really interesting conversation, Brendan. Show, thanks very much. Thanks for having me, guys. I and hope, thanks uh, uh, for hosting today as well. In office, our off-site for us. That was a little interesting twist. I think we, we all enjoyed. Yeah. yeah. And well, thanks to our sponsor, First National, as always. 
Uh, you can always find us on um, on iTunes, on Google Play. Uh, subscribe, subscribe to those uses, any pod catcher. Any last words, Brennan? Thanks for having me, guys. It's uh, been a pleasure for CBRE to host the podcast today. We're big fans and uh, hope it was informative for the listeners. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.